My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders. If you're visiting with us, we are delighted to have you. Thanks for coming to join us. Welcome back to our dearly beloved Rank family. We're so glad to have you guys here. Welcome to those joining us on Zoom. We are glad that you are here. This morning, we continue our study of the book of Ephesians. We'll be in chapter 4, which is on page 918. If you have one of the church Bibles, if you need a Bible, you can just grab one uh, just out, outside there on the table or on the shelf. Sadly, diversity has a history of dividing the church of Jesus Christ. In his book, Talking About Race, author Isaac Adams describes two old records from Christian churches that he came across. The first record is from a church newsletter in the year 1818. And in this newsletter, the church highlights the following as a point of attraction. Another thing in favor, another thing in our favor is that we have very few Negroes in our congregation. They tend to hinder the gospel. It makes me sick to read of such wickedness and racism in the historic Christian church, but we must not pretend it wasn't there. The second record he mentions in this book is that of a deacon's meeting in an East Coast church from the 1970s. So this was after the civil rights movement. One of the deacons in this church was reported to have said, before we let a N join this church, we'll burn this place down. Now this is a horrific and vile evil committed by a leader in the church of Jesus Christ. But you know, the Lord has a sense of humor because that very church is currently pastored by a black man and a majority of its members are black. No wolves in sheep's clothing have been permitted to burn that thing down. Now, of course, race is just one possible dividing line among God's people. There are actually all sorts of people I have trouble getting along with because they are different from me in a variety of ways. And apart from the grace of God, which we heard about in, in Ephesians chapter 3, apart from that grace, I will gravitate toward those people who are most like me and I will avoid those who are most different from me. And according to the book of Ephesians, this must not be so. The grace of God has appeared to make it not so. This is not the calling to which God has called us. God the Father is in the process of uniting all things in Christ. And so we are commanded to walk in unity with those who, however different they may be, have set their hope and placed their faith in the same Savior, Jesus Christ. 
In this morning's passage, we will see that our calling is precisely to value unified diversity in this church. That's point number one. And then the text will go on to give us two reasons for this. Both of which are rooted in the nature and the gracious work of our great God and Savior. Let me pray for us as we dig into the text. Our Father, please open our eyes and grant us humility to receive your word and your truth. Lord, help us to see those places in our own community where we have allowed diversity to divide the church. And I ask that you would speak truth to us from your word, that we might speak it to one another, and so be built up toward unity in love for your glory. Thank you, Jesus, for rising from the dead and entering the heavenly places to take on all rule and authority so that you might equip us to make this be so. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 4 of Ephesians marks a major shift in the letter. Up to now, Paul has been explaining the doctrines of grace and unity and the Trinity, and now he finally moves into particular application. And so these first three verses of this chapter give the overarching command that governs the rest of the letter. This is our call to unified diversity. Ephesians 4 Verses 1 through 3. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. In the bond of peace. These verses show us the call to value unified diversity. In verse 1, Paul the prisoner urges the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. Now, he, he's explained their calling in great detail in chapters 1 and 2. That's what we've been discussing through this letter. It's their calling by God from before the foundation of the world to be his people. It is the calling of God's grace to trust in Jesus and show forth the riches of his grace to a watching world. It is the calling to draw upon the immeasurable greatness of God's power to unite all things in Jesus Christ. This is the calling that he's been describing. And Paul has made it very, very clear that we can do nothing to earn this call. But he now here, verse 1, wants us to walk in a manner worthy of this call. You see, friends, you and I, along with all believers in Jesus Christ, we have an obligation to live in a manner consistent with this call that God has placed on us. We are to walk worthy of it. 
Because believers in Jesus Christ are themselves the inheritance of God, their lives are to reflect the worthiness of his call to unity. A newly elected president doesn't wait for someone else to make decisions for him. That would not be worthy of his call. A baseball coach does not place himself as a pinch hitter for one of his players. That would not be worthy of his call as a coach. A mother does not feed only herself or leave her infant child to do the grocery shopping. That would not be worthy of her call as a mother. And Christians... Do not neglect the unity of the Spirit or the bond of peace among believers. That would not be worthy of their call as God's people. In verses 2 and 3 here, Paul explains how to walk in a manner worthy of this call. Verse 2, it requires humility, gentleness, patience, And forbearance. In verse 3 he says it means that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You see according to Paul earlier in this letter he described the unity of the trinity among the persons of the trinity. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And that unity is unbreakable. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit lives in perfect harmony with himself, each person contributing to and sustaining the overall unity of God. And also, according to Paul earlier in this letter, the unity of believers that they have with God is also unbreakable. You can't do anything to earn it. God has prepared your good works For you to do in advance and his grace will see it through. However, according to Paul, this third unity, the unity of believers with one another, is precious and can be fragile. Why? Why is this so fragile? Why must we be eager to maintain it? And it's because he presumes diversity in the church you will disagree and be different from one another that's why in verse 2 this unity requires humility gentleness patience and forbearance you see it requires us to think of others more highly than ourselves that's humility it requires us to give one another the space to make mistakes And perhaps offend one another. That's forbearance. It requires us to know the love of Christ. And to have much hope for the future. That's patience. These are all the things that Paul has been praying for. In the first few chapters of this letter. That which is worthy of the believer's calling. 
is verse 3, to be aware of the unity of the Spirit that already exists, God with himself and God with believers, and thereby to be eager to maintain that unity within the church, the bond of peace. I have four applications for you from this text. Number one, be humble toward those who are different from you. Try to verse two. Be humble toward those who are different from you. In other words, please don't put yourself first. Consider others more highly than yourself. Number two, be gentle toward those who are different from you. Please be gentle toward those who are different from you. In other words, please don't address everything that bothers you about somebody. You don't have to bring up everything that rubs you the wrong way. Be gentle. And when you must address something, don't do so with harsh words or by drawing unfair conclusions about their motivations or their intentions. Be humble, be gentle. You can see where I'm going. Verse 2, third application is be patient toward those who are different from you. Be patient toward those who are different from you. In other words, don't be surprised when things are complex in relationship with other people. Don't be hasty when something takes much longer to sort out relationally than you had hoped it would. Be patient. And application number four, from the end of verse four, is be forbearing toward those who are different from you. Be forbearing toward those who are different from you. In other words, be ready to cover over people's offenses with love whenever possible. If you can possibly live with it, then do so. That's what it means to be forbearing. If you can live with someone else's foibles, please do so. You do not have to fix everything. And so please, don't make a nuisance of yourself by bringing up every possible offense. Your calling to unity is a worthy call when it is rooted in the grace of God through Christ. And so please act in these four ways worthy of that call. This is what it looks like to value, to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So please value, praise, and incentivize these four things within our community. But why? Why should we bother doing these things instead of You know, we could always just splinter further and further. Why not divide the church? We can start a new one. This is America. That's what Americans do. We can we can just keep splintering further and further until we have happy little churches or happy little denominations for every possible subgroup of Christian people. Why not do that? See, Paul wants you to be eager to maintain this kind of unity. He wants you to value unified diversity. So he now offers you two reasons 
why diversity should not divide. Two reasons diversity shouldn't divide. As we've said a number of times in this sermon series so far, the first reason is because, letter A, of the unity of the diverse trinity. And in verses 4 through 6, Paul makes this more explicit than anywhere else in the letter so far. Verse 4, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Friends, what he's doing in these verses is he's describing the unity that is present within God himself. He repeats the word one seven times in these three verses. And the Greek grammar divides the sentence into three parts, which are marked quite nicely by our verse divisions here. In verse 4, these things all fit together. There's the unity of the body and the unity of the spirit. And this is related to the unified hope of your call in verse 4. This first part, these first three ones, one body, one spirit, one hope. This highlights the role of God, the Holy Spirit, to bring the new birth to the new humanity that is now one in Christ Jesus. The Spirit is the one who births the body and gives you this hope in your call. So God, the Holy Spirit, has a real stake in the unity of the church. In verse 5, we have the unity of the Lord, the unity of the faith, and the unity of the baptism. In this letter, this title, the Lord, references the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son. He is the object of true faith as demonstrated by baptism. That's why we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. This second part here of his statement, it highlights the role of God the Son to bring life and cleansing to those who trust in Him and become part of His body, uh, His body in the church through baptism. God the Son has a real stake in the unity of the church. And verse 6 is the third part, which is the unity of God the Father's rule and control over all things, His sovereign will which He exercises through all things, and His omnipresence in all things. There is one God and Father of all, over all, through all, and in all. Because God the Father reigns supreme in the cosmos and He is in the process of uniting all things in Christ, God the Father has a real stake in the unity of the church. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit all have a stake in the unity of the church. And He, this God, has planned and worked to the end of unity in the church and the persons of God collaborate in perfect harmony despite their diverse roles to bring this unity to pass. 
Each of the three persons of the Trinity has a different role, a different set of responsibilities. There's much diversity among them, but there remains a perfect unity of what we refer to as the Godhead, the divine essence. There is one God existing in these three persons who is in perfect unity with himself to bring about his perfect will. You see, Moses once told the people of Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was the essential confession of the Jews in the Old Testament. And Paul, God has now revealed more of himself through Paul, who tells us that there is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the first reason diversity shouldn't divide the church. It's because there is much diversity within God himself, and yet God is not divided. He is one. When you have trouble getting along with people who are different from you, remember that this church is built on the foundation of, of God's unity with himself among the three persons of the Trinity. God knows what it's like to maintain unity amid diversity. And because of that, he can supply us with all the resources we need to do the same. But there's yet a second reason why diversity shouldn't divide the church. Letter B. It is the gracious gifts of the ascended Christ. You see, Jesus is no longer with us on earth. When he departed this planet and went to heaven, he gave his church many gifts to assist their efforts to maintain the unity of the spirit. That's the main idea of what Paul says in the passage I'm going to read now. Verses 7 through 16. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
There's a lot here. But the second major reason that diversity shouldn't divide the church is because Jesus Christ has given diverse gifts to make unity possible. Okay, this part of the letter is very dense. It's very detailed. And so I want to make sure we don't miss the forest for the trees. There's there's a lot of little details we could get lost in here, but let me give you the forest. I would like to map out Paul's argument for you in four steps. Okay, here's his argument. Step number one is verses 7 through 10. His argument is simply this. Jesus gives gifts. That's it. Verses 7 to 10, that's what he's saying. Jesus gives gifts. I can explain that a little further. When Jesus ascended triumphantly into heaven, he dished out gifts of plunder to his people. This is what a king does after winning a great victory. The king's victory becomes the people's victory. The king's prosperity becomes the people's prosperity. The king's plunder becomes the people's gifts. The people's prosperity depends on the king's grace. Verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us. That's step one in his argument. Okay, I gave you some more of the details, but don't get lost. Here's the main idea. Jesus gives gifts. Step two is in verse 11. Step two. The gifts are leaders. The gifts are leaders. That's what he says in verse 11. That the gifts that Jesus gives are not personality traits or individual talents, but leaders for the assembly. Look closely at verses 7 and 11. Verse 7, he says, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he goes on talking about his ascension and how he gives gifts because he ascended. He's a victorious king. But he comes back to it in verse 11. He, what are the gifts? He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. You see, he doesn't say that Jesus gave to each of us a skill, a passion, or a talent that must be put to use in service to him. Now, I'm not saying he doesn't do that. That might be something we could draw out of other passages in the New Testament. Okay? But that's not his argument here. Don't read that into this. Here in Ephesians 4, Paul says that your gifts from Jesus are not your passions and your talents, but they are your leaders. Your gifts from Jesus are your leaders. The apostles and prophets who wrote down the scriptures so that you could hear the very words of God. They are your gifts. The evangelists who proclaimed the good news to you so you could repent and believe and find life. They are your gifts. The shepherds and teachers who now explain the word of God to you so that you can know the love of Christ and maintain the unity of the Spirit. Those shepherds and teachers are your gifts. So the second step in Paul's argument is that the gifts of Jesus are your leaders. 
in the church. Step three in his argument is in verse 12. Verse 12 is step three, and it's this. Leaders equip members. Okay, Jesus gives gifts. The gifts are leaders. Step three, leaders equip members. Church leaders equip church members for ministry. You see, the gifts of leaders to the church are there, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Remember, the saints are not just the superhuman, really holy people of the past. The saints is Paul's word for every believer in Jesus Christ who has been made holy and washed clean by the blood of Jesus. So leaders equip the saints, the members. The leaders of the church, in other words, are not supposed to do the work of ministry all by themselves. They are not even supposed to do most of it. Instead, the leaders are given as gifts by Jesus to the church in order to equip others to do most of the personal ministry. You see, the gift of church leaders is a gift that keeps on giving because faithful church leaders will raise up more leaders who raise up more leaders who raise up more leaders and the unity of the church depends on faithful leaders equipping others for ministry and not centering the church's ministry around themselves. So the third step in Paul's argument is that church leaders equip church members for ministry. Now the fourth and final step in verses 12 through 16 is that members minister toward unity members minister toward unity jesus gives gifts the gifts are church leaders leaders equip members members minister toward unity verse 12 the equipping has as its goal the building up of the body of Christ. You see, the end result of that building up is verse 13 until we all attain to the unity of the faith, which is also described as the knowledge of the Son of God. You see, we all need each of us, we all need to help each other know Jesus better. Get that knowledge of the Son of God that we might all attain to the unity of the faith. Now, how do church members minister to one another? And especially, how do you do that toward the end goal of unity? Well, the answer to that is in verse 15. 14 says we don't want to be tossed about. We don't want to be deceived and caught. But verse 15, what do we do? He says, speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way. How do we grow up as a church? We speak the truth in love. And in verse 15, in the Greek, this is very, was very interesting to me. There is no verb in the Greek for speaking. I never knew that until I studied it for this sermon. What Paul does is he took the word for truth and he just turned it into a verb 
what he, what he says very poorly, literally, could be translated as, uh, we are truthing in love. Truthing in love. Now, you can't do that without speaking. That's why translators sub- add the word speaking. There's speech involved. But I think there's more to it than speech. It means your whole life, everything you do is truthing. You are communicating truth, the truth of God, the unity of the Godhead, the unity of believers with Christ, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We live for the truth. We speak it. We embody it. We apply it. We encode the truth within our church structures and processes. And as we truth one another within the confines of our humble assembly, each person will, verse 15, grow up into Christ who is our head. And so then what happens is this thing takes on a life of its own. Verse 16 says, the body builds itself up in love. So that true thing happens all the time and it happens all the time in love. Friends, please understand the implications of this. If there is someone in this church who grates on you, someone who does things differently than you and thereby, who knows, they, they behave in certain ways that bother you. Maybe they regularly miss volunteer deadlines or they don't follow through on commitments or they speak in ways that you don't prefer. Of course, they bear responsibility for their behaviors. However, it may be likely that you also bear responsibility for any lack of unity if you have refused to have a gentle, humble, patient, and forbearing, yet direct conversation with that person about this matter. See, sometimes we may fear drawing attention to behaviors that disrupt the church. And then our fear and avoidance causes even greater disruption to the church. Because we don't give one another the opportunity to make improvements and be built up in love. Now this does not mean that it is your Christian obligation or my Christian obligation to speak out every time somebody does something wrong or hurtful. Please hear what I said before and let's be forbearing whenever possible. It does not mean that, but what it does mean is that we must speak up when the unity of the church could otherwise be threatened. And how do you know? Because we just, we, it's so easy to make excuses. I can't talk to that person because of these 18 reasons. How do you know when the unity of the church could be threatened? Well, we speak truth to one another whenever not doing so will deepen our divisions or fracture our relationships further. This could involve a doctrinal threat to the gospel, but it also could be a behavioral threat to peace and unity. So if you find yourself dwelling on the pain or annoyance you feel from the unhelpful behaviors of another person, and you can't put it out of your mind, you can't just live with it and move on and forget about it, 
And especially if you find yourself mentioning it to other people in your frustration, that is a very good sign that you need to go and have a frank conversation with that person. Frank and loving. In those conversations, don't be a sucker. Don't choose between being honest with them or being respectful. You never have to choose. Always do both. Be honest and respectful. Truthing in love. Doesn't just mean you just speak your mind and let them have it. This is what it means to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Our chief tactic is truthing one another in love. So our second big reason for why diversity shouldn't divide is because Jesus Christ gives diverse gifts that train and equip us all to build one another up in love. Jesus' gifts are not personality traits or talents in this text, but they are the very leaders of our assembly, past and present. These leaders are to equip church members for ministry, and that ministry is the ministry of truthing one another in love, building our community on the rock of Jesus Christ, pointing one another constantly to him and to his grace calling one another to repent of sin and rely on his sin-bearing death, rejoicing in his resurrection and his ascension that have made all of this possible. And we need many different kinds of people to play many different kinds of roles in this church to make this happen. Unity is really hard work. But the diverse gifts of Jesus, including our leaders who equip us, Make it possible. How does this apply? Let me end with some final application. Three applications for you. First, please don't be deceived by division in the church. Don't be deceived by division in the church. Division shouldn't divide the church, but sometimes it does. One major deception today claims that when Christians have fights and divisions, it must mean that Christianity cannot be true. And this is simply not true. Christians have fights and divisions because we are sinful creatures. That's why we needed Jesus to die for us. And so we're not always as eager as we ought to be to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Unity is precious. Sometimes it's very fragile. And we often forget that God is unified within himself and that he has given us the resources we need to equip us and maintain unity. So when Christians fight and divisions take place, it doesn't mean that Jesus Christ has failed to reign from heaven. It simply means that his gifts of plunder have not been fully appropriated by us. But those gifts remain there for us to grasp hold of and make good use of. We all need to keep growing up, rejecting deception and truthing in love. And the very next passage, you can read it ahead this week. I'll preach it next week. It explains what to do when our diversity does, in fact, divide the church. What do we do then? 
So this first application is to resist this deception. Don't be deceived by division in the church. Second application. Thank Jesus for the gifts he has given you in your leaders. Thank Jesus for the gifts he has given you in your leaders. This church is already very strong in this application. I've never felt unappreciated by you all. I think the other elders and deacons can say the same. We love you all so deeply. And I know the elders and I are so grateful for the appreciation, the tangible appreciation you showed us just a few months ago. So I don't propose this application as something to start doing. I just want to encourage you from this passage to do so yet more and more. Thank you for your patience with our many faults and mistakes. But by showing gratitude and receiving our teaching and our equipping of you, you make it delightful for us to serve you. Thank you. Third and final application. Fulfill your calling by building one another up in love. Fulfill your calling by building one another up in love. And friends, unity, maintaining unity in the church does not require us to spend every waking hour together. We need to be out there after all, once in a while, bringing people in. We have jobs and callings and families. We need to recognize the diversity of callings among us with a diversity of vocations and family situations and availability. However, we could still improve at spending more time together whenever possible. And especially by making strategic use of our time together to build one another up and do this work of ministry, directing one another to Christ and not just tearing one another down. We don't assemble together so that we can talk about all the people who aren't in the room who frustrate us. But we get together so we can talk to the people who frustrate us and help make it better. We don't assemble in order to compete and compare. We do so to draw on the resources of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we proclaim the truth to one another so we may live in light of it, and thereby we celebrate the diversity among us. And though we will make many mistakes, we must keep trying until we get it right, until we attain to the unity of the faith. Verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, which has been preserved for us by the Spirit of God for the body of Christ. Friends, diversity shouldn't divide the church, though sometimes it does. We are called to value unified diversity because God himself is fully unified within the diversity of the Trinity And our triumphant King Jesus has given us his gifts of plunder to achieve his purpose of uniting all things in himself. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful to you that uh, you are over all and through all and in all. And Father, you sent your Son to die and rise again, you raised him up on high where you made him king of all things. And you have sent your spirit to be with us, to make us your children, 
to make us your body. Help us, Lord, to draw on these resources that you have entrusted to us. Your unity that is the foundation for everything. And the leaders that you've placed in the church, past and present, to equip us and to strengthen us. Help us to do this work of ministry, to build one another up in love. Help us to truth one another in love until we all attain the unity of the faith and we grow up in Christ in you. We ask for your help with these things. We cannot do it on our own. In Jesus' name, amen.